0: Well, let me add my welcome uh, this morning. My name is Alistair. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Pete's, and uh, we're really glad you're joining us for our first live stream service. Uh, We've been pre-recording these for the past almost year. Can you believe it? And we're making the shift because we think in the long term, uh, it's gonna be more sustainable. But as you've noticed, we're having some hiccups. We expected that. Uh, We'll get them sorted out, and we appreciate you uh, bearing with us. So if you're new with us for the first time, welcome we're really glad you're here. If you call St. Pete's home, uh, we're really glad we can be worshiping together. Uh, but before we dig into the word and the passage we just read, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks uh, for your goodness to us and your kindness to us in this season that uh, there are still ways in which we can remain connected. There are still ways in which we can gather. Uh, we are united, Lord, by the authority of your scripture, this story of, We just proclaimed in the creed, and by the power of your Spirit, we are one and we are together. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters who are especially struggling through this time, uh, for people who are feeling tired, whose expectations have been thwarted or disappointed, uh, who are feeling lonely, whose mental health might be falling apart at the seams. Lord, I pray even right now by the power of your Spirit that you would comfort those who are weeping, that you would draw near to those who are lonely, that you would help us to support one another as this season continues on. So as we open your word, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds that we not grow shallow, that you'd open, apply it to our hearts so we not grow cold, and that you'd apply it to our feet. We not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as you may or may not know, we are slowly, ever so slowly working our way through the gospel of Luke. And we're taking a bit of a pit stop in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, to look at the ministry of John the Baptist. In two sermons so far, we've looked at uh, the ministry of John as a ministry of preparation. He's preparing the way for the Lord. He's preparing a people the Lord. And in the second sermon last week, Lloyd beautifully helped us examine his message. He had a message of repentance to help prepare the way. And today we're going to look at the expectations of John. So we're going to dig right into it. We're going to get straight to the point. I have three things I want to look at today, expectations, baptism, and good news. So let's begin with our first point, expectations. We read in Luke chapter 3, verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might be the Messiah. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. Now, waiting expectantly and wandering in their hearts, this is actually throwback language in the Gospel of Luke. We should think of all the people gathered outside the temple waiting for Zechariah, the high priest, to come back out. But he's not coming back out. They're waiting expectantly and they're wondering, what's going on in there? Did he encounter the Lord? Did did he die? Did we tie that rope around his waist for good reason? Are we actually going to have to drag someone out by the rope for the first time? We always thought it was a precautionary measure, but they're waiting expectantly. Or we might think of Mary who wandered in her own heart at the message from Gabriel. What kind of greeting might this be? What is God up to? How does it involve me? And so people are making a pilgrimage out into the Jordan wilderness to see John, and they're not driven out there by some vague curiosity. You don't make a full day trip out into the Jordan just because you want something to do. You know, they're motivated by their expectation and their wonder. They're thinking, could this man possibly be the Messiah? Now, to be fair, they weren't exactly expecting a Messiah dressed in camel's hair uh, with a mouthful of honey and a handful of locusts. But that was nothing a good PR firm in the ancient world couldn't handle. They might be able to clean this guy's political image up still. But in all seriousness, we need to understand that the expectations... For the Messiah ran deep in their national identity. And these expectations are somewhat tender. When I was a singer in an emo or what was called screamo band, uh, I wrote a song called The Chaos Within. And it had a lyric that said, a life of expectations lets me down. And that's probably everything you need to know to piece together what my band was all about. And looking back, I wish I could say I was influenced by stoicism or some intellectual thought. But the truth of the matter is really simple. I was just being emo. And even so, I unintentionally captured a way of thinking. Happiness in life is really a matter of negotiating our expectations. You know, the biggest challenge to our happiness is our expectations not being met. And we all know something about this, don't we? I mean, think of your own expectations. Think of your own unmet expectations. You know, perhaps it was the expectation that your career would advance in a certain way, or that your degree would actually lead to a job, or the job of your dreams. Or maybe you thought you would have a relationship that was steady by now, or be married by now, or have kids by now or that your political vision or your political efforts would actually make a greater impact upon the world, or that your health problems would be part of the past by now, or that this pandemic would be over by now. And what do we do with all these unmet expectations? Well, sometimes we just double down and try harder. We think unmet expectations just requires more motivation, or so we think. But sometimes we see that all the effort in the world can't change the circumstances around us. It's beyond our control. And so we bury our expectations that have been unmet deep down. We push them down and we try to ignore them. Or when expectations go unmet long enough, we become furious with God. At least initially, we're angry with God, but over time... I don't know if you've experienced this, but it gives way to a sense of resignation, a disengagement, an aloofness. Or perhaps we just try to become stoics, and we just try to start living by simpler expectations, because a life of expectations lets me down. And the very next line I would sing was, so what's the point of trying to change anything? But occasionally, something stirs our expectations afresh. Something dislodges those unmet expectations that we've buried or tried to ignore or that are constantly on our mind. But something brings them to the forefront. And what happens? They hurt. Because our unmet expectations are tender. You know, Israel expected a Messiah, but it's a tender expectation because they've been let down time and time again by plenty of political leaders or false messiahs but what can you do with an expectation like this you know you can't force god's hand you can't just choose someone and make your own messiah and you can't make the expectation go away because it's it's woven into the fabric of your national identity and the scriptures you follow But beneath this question, you know, could this man possibly be the Messiah, are deeper longings as well. Where is our hope for the future? When will we be free from discrimination? When will a foreign power cease to occupy our land? When will the tax collectors stop lining their pockets through exhorting us, you know, When will there be lasting peace? When will God finally make good on this promise to bring a king who's going to establish an everlasting kingdom of peace? When, when can we finally take a breath and know that everything is going to be all right? Deep longings are behind this question. Is John possibly the Messiah? Maybe. Now, as readers of Luke's gospel, we know something that those heading out to John in the wilderness don't know yet. We know that John is not the Messiah. We know, in fact, that Jesus is the expected Messiah. And so John, in true prophetic uh, manner, redirects the people asking this question. He says in verse 16 of chapter 3, I baptize you with water, but... One who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, if you're rich in the modern world, you buy Tesla. You buy a fancy car. That's how how you show people you're wealthy and that you care about the environment. If you're rich in the ancient world, uh, and I'm assuming just for live stream clarity that my jokes are landing as well as they usually do, which is they're not landing. But one way you could flaunt your wealth in the ancient world was by having servants whose sole task was to untie your sandals when you get home. And it would be a way of showing honor to your guests. They would come and untie the sandal. And this was a menial task designated to the lowliest of low servants. So what exactly is John saying? He cannot compare to the Messiah. There is no comparison. And it's a rather curious thing when you know John's pedigree in Christ's eyes that John would have this view of himself because later in the Gospel of Luke, this is what Jesus says of John. Among those born of woman, no one is greater than John. Yet, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. You see, John knows his place in God's story. Yes, he's been entrusted the most critical ministry of preparation. He's preparing the stage for the greatest protagonist of human history. And so John is comfortable to take a knee, to take a bow before the Messiah because John knows what he can expect of this king. And this brings us to our second point, which helps John's expectations become clearer to us, and our second point is baptism. You see, John isn't content just to talk about his relationship to the Messiah's sandals, as interesting as that may be. He goes on to say in verses 16 and 17, the Messiah will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Uh, the Christian movement, as you probably know, continued and continues this practice of water baptism, just like John's baptism. Now, there's similarities and there's differences, but when John is talking about a baptism with Holy Spirit and fire, he has more than water baptism in mind. For example, later in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I'm under until it's completed. You know, this is Jesus' way of referring to his singular purpose for coming into the world. He had a baptism to undergo. He had something to accomplish and he had his eyes fixed on what it was. Offering his life for the sake of the world on the cross. To forgive sins and reconcile people to God. To bring the rule and reign of God into our midst. He had a baptism to undergo. And through his death and resurrection, by receiving this baptism, Jesus opens up this new way of relating to God. We can now be united to God because we can share in God's very life through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just some impersonal power or some energy force. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, this great mystery. And so through faith in Jesus, the living Spirit of God makes a home in us, dwells in us, enables us, empowers us, changes us. Now you know these changes are often subtle. The Apostle Paul describes them as degree by degree. It's a a manner of degrees that we're being changed by the power of God, but all the same, we're being changed. God's rule and reign is coming into our lives through Christ's Spirit, leading us into this world to become more and more like Him, not just believing in Him, but doing as He does as well. But John we should note, doesn't just say that the Messiah would come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's good news. We, we like that part. But John actually says, this is a baptism of, with the Holy Spirit and fire. And fire. Now, in some instances, fire in the scriptures is just a metaphor for purification. And so it's possible that fire refers to how the Holy Spirit refines us, transforms us, like fire refining metals. Or some scholars say this could be an allusion to a future event, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit appears with tongues of fire. And certainly we don't want to exclude these meanings. They need to inform this passage, but the immediate context helps us understand what John means by fire. John goes on to say, "...his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor." To gather up the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so winnowing was just a way of you know, tossing the harvested grain up into the air and allowing the wind to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so the emphasis of this image that John gives is on division or separation. So by saying that Jesus will baptize with Holy Spirit and fire, John is saying two things. Jesus... Brings salvation and Jesus brings judgment. Jesus brings salvation, union with God, the forgiveness of sins, God making his dwelling among us, in us, and judgment, unquenchable fire that separates wheat from chaff. Jesus will divide the wheat from the chaff. Scripture portrays this in several different ways Uh, good from evil, the righteous from the wicked, the sheep from the goats. Uh, The repentant from the unrepentant, those who will bend their knee because they know who the king is and those who will continue to rebel against him and reject him. Now I get it. Like the people in Luke's gospel, we come to Jesus with our own deep expectations, our longings for a better world, our personal desires for transformation or or healing, our, our hope to see Goodness and justice and equity take root in the world. That there might be a new beauty across the face of the earth marked by peace. And we come to Jesus with these expectations. And we hear a grand message that God in fact is making all things new. And yet we also get handed this message of judgment. And it's not what we expected. And the judgment side of things. It's not a popular image of Jesus It's not the thing flannel graphs are made of. But we need to come to terms with the fact that sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, Jesus has hard truths to say and they even have a harsh edge to them sometimes. For example, Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 41, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? And in Luke chapter 12, verse 49 through 53, Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, referencing his cross. And what constraint I am until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, which is probably the least surprising of all of those. Now, these are all red letter words. In other words, these are the very words of Jesus himself. These are coming out of his mouth. Jesus says his cross will divide the world. It will split the world asunder into two. And I know these sayings and other sayings of Jesus can be very difficult for us to hear or make sense of what he was getting at. And I also know there is a pull within the human spirit to just ignore them, to gloss them over, to say this isn't really a part of the message. But we can't do that. For example, there was a skeptical scholarly movement in the 80s and the 90s called the Jesus Seminar. And their aim was to discover the truly historic words and deeds of Jesus. Who was this Jesus of Nazareth? And at the end of it all, the shared conclusion of 150 highly skeptical scholars was this. Jesus was a failed end times prophet. Now, I don't agree with them. uh, But what I find interesting is that the most skeptical historical research concluded That it's the harsher statements about Jesus that are most likely to be his genuine words. So when Jesus has a more difficult thing to say, they would say that is more likely the authentic Jesus. So if we try to remove or ignore the difficult things Jesus says sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, we might actually be removing his most authentic parts. But Scripture unashamedly attests to what the church throughout the ages has proclaimed. At the end of this age, Jesus will return to judge with justice the living and the dead. Every single person will give an account to him. The secret of their hearts will be exposed. The things we can barely admit to ourselves, let alone to other human ears all that we wished we had not done and all that we wished we would have done or that we could undo. It's all going to be laid bare on that last day before the God from whom no secrets are hidden and he will judge with justice. This is an inescapable part of the faith once delivered, the authentic faith of the church, the message of Jesus. But there's a few mistaken ways you can respond to his message of judgment. I just want to name a couple. One mistake toward judgment is to relish in it. You know, instead of judgment being part of the message, it becomes the whole of the message. I'm imagining the person that loves to tell other people that they stand condemned and only pays lip service to the message of repentance and life and union with God and all the goodness God is bringing into the world. You see, in these instances, when we relish in judgment, God is portrayed as an unpleased deity, ready to pounce on the littlest opportunity to enact judgment on an individual. Another mistake we have towards judgment is to diminish it. Essentially, it's the belief that everything will work out in the end. God will give everyone a big pass. Judgment won't be this picture we see here in John, Jesus dividing the wheat from the chaff. No, God is just going to make it all right and everyone will get in in the end. Yet another mistake towards judgment is to disregard it. And this is pretty common. It's the mistaken belief that whether or not Jesus was who he claimed to be, you can't know. But if there ends up being a God, if you end up being judged, you had a pretty good moral track record and you'll probably be okay with God. And if you're not, well, that's God's problem. The problem here is it misses that God is not concerned with our scorecards, our moral track records, because as the prophet says, all of our good deeds are just filthy rags before him, anyways. No, the Lord wants to know you and wants to walk with you and wants to be with you. He is looking for something other than a scorecard. And when you disregard judgment this way, you disregard how God has made himself known and how he is knowable. Four. One more mistake. You reject God altogether because you just can't come to terms with the fact that God judges at all. And I think all of us, all of us are going to be pulled in some of these directions or many of these directions because the theme of judgment is not easy. It's weighty and it's heavy and it's often personal as Jesus says in that one passage it, it divides father from son and mother from daughter because sometimes within our own families we don't all believe in the lord you know the fire Jesus is going to bring to the earth this baptism of fire it's it's disconcerting but i don't think that Jesus wants us to relish in it or diminish it or disregard it or reject him over it and i find it a little strange don't you think that this image of jesus with a winnowing fork, and this picture of wheat and chaff and unquenchable fire is immediately followed by verse 18. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. This brings us to our our last point, the good news. We can see this message of judgment as good news. I don't know about you, but I find that a little surprising. I find that a little bit hard to get my head around. How is this good news for us, for the world? Uh, The Cuban-American scholar Usto Gonzalez asks this very question. and He says, this is not good news in the sense that it will make everybody happy. It is not good news in the sense that whatever evil and injustice people have committed and still commit is no longer important. It is good news in the sense that a new reality is dawning. Evil and injustice will be undone. But it is not good news for those who thrive on injustice, whose power is oppressive and unjust. And as we have already said in this series, as Lloyd helpfully showed us last week, it's usually people who benefit from the privilege of living in a developed nation Or the privilege of a certain social class that scoff at the notion of God's judgment. But for the rest of the world, for the marginalized, for the oppressed, for those that suffer at the hands of abuse and injustice and evil and racism and all kinds of atrocities, God's judgment is indeed good news. Yes, it's very good news that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit, that he forgives our sins, he welcomes us into God's family, he fills us with his Spirit, he shares his very eternal life with us so that we can live forever with him, but also begin to live as citizens of his kingdoms here now. That's very good news. That is the dominant message. And it is also good news that he baptizes with fire. It is good news that he will purify the world. He will ultimately remove all evil and suffering and sin and even death. He will hold the world to an account and he will not turn a blind eye to the tragedies of human history. And this kind of power, the power of Jesus, it's awe-inspiring and simultaneously terrifying. It's profoundly exciting and it's dangerous. It saves and it judges And judgment's uncomfortable, but it is good news. It's good news because our deepest desires and expectations for love and joy and beauty and goodness and equity and justice to deepen and take root in this world, they will not be disappointed. And so we could say our deepest expectations when we get down to the heart of it is for God to judge justly. John had great expectations for who the Messiah would be. Our passage makes that much clearer, but I suspect how Jesus behaved as the Messiah surprised even John's wildest expectations. If we jump to the Gospel of John, we read in chapter 13, verses 3 through 5, something profound. We discover that the one This is the one more powerful than John. This is the kind of power he has. He has power from God. He is God. And yet this is how he exercises it. He takes the position of a lowly servant to serve. The only task lower than untying the sandal is the washing of feet. As the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in an appearance. As a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We can trust Jesus to judge the world at the end of the age. We can trust him. We might not understand judgment. We might not even understand how it's all going to be just. But we can trust him. Because Jesus doesn't lord his power over us. Rather, we discover him on bended knee, washing our feet, inviting us into his kingdom, dying for us and rising for us, offering us his baptism and leading us into the very life of God before this day of judgment. And if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, the fires of God's judgment will refine us rather than consume us. Do you trust him? Do you see that the one whose sandal we're not worthy to untie is the one who is on bended knee before us washing our feet? And if so, if so, The invitation is to go and do likewise. To wash the feet of a world being prepared for him to return to judge with justice. Let's pray.